Welcome back to Comics Over Time, a podcast where we take a trip through the history of Marvel Comics with a focus on some of the important and interesting comic stories that inspired the Hollywood blockbusters of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Every two weeks we take a look at a batch of comics, then watch the related MCU movie or TV show, and after we're done, we connect the dots from the comic book panels to the moving pictures and try and answer that most important of questions, who told the tale best, the books or the screen adaptation? My name is Dwayne, and with me, as always, my good buddy Dan. Dan, we went to the theater this week. Absolutely. Man, was that fun. Always good to get back to the theater. Movie theater popcorn, hanging out with the kids, watching a, uh, watching a Marvel movie. So it's, uh, it's a good time. Mm-hmm. As to the movie itself, what did we go and watch? We watched the third installment of the Ant-Man franchise. Who would have ever figured you'd be saying those words a decade ago, right? <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but in fact, uh, that is where we're at. This movie had a lot to do, too, because it actually introduced us to a new hero. It built out a whole new sort of tiny world within the Marvel Universe. And it actually starts the ball rolling on the whole fifth phase of the MCU. So what we're going to talk about this week is how exactly did it do on all of those goals? lot to talk about, Dwayne. Yes, definitely. But before we do that, we're going to jump into a little bit of comic book news. And the first uh, story I want to tell you about is Marvel announces a new Daredevil and Echo series. So this is being promoted as a four-issue miniseries featuring Daredevil and Echo, who will come face-to-face with a demigoblin in hopes of saving the Big Apple from the demon's villainous ways. Though little else is known about this so far, Marvel says the fact Echo lost the Phoenix Force is one of the plot threads at the forefront of this of this uh, miniseries. Uh, it's written by Taboo and B. Earl. Uh, these two have written a handful of comics for Marvel, including Werewolf by Night, Deadly Neighborhood Spider-Man, and Marvel Voices Indigenous Voices. And the art is going to be by Phil Notto. And uh, if you're interested in that, that series is going to start in May. May 24th is when it is tentatively set to release. So what do you think of... I I liked Daredevil. I liked Daredevil. I liked Echo the few times that we've seen her in some of the other uh, comic yep. books. So this is this is pretty interesting. Yeah, and this really probably is going to be something that helps to sort of set up and reintroduce everything for kind of getting a new status quo going before the Echo TV series comes out as well. It's more than yeah. likely, if you're looking forward to that show, this would be something that would be a good thing probably to, to check out to see how the comic books are getting ready for that. Phil Noto's art is always great. He's got a very design-heavy, really clean art style, so I'm sure the art's going to look great. Do you remember Demogoblin from... Back in the day, we actually faced him in Moon Knight. I uh, early do not 90s. Really. I do not really 90s. remember. Yeah, Mark Spector faced off against the Demogoblin a few times. So Okay. It's uh I think that was about the time when he was gonna be his brother was re- resurrected, and there was a lot of crazy stuff going on. So that would be right near the end of the the nineties Mark Spector Moon Knight series. Gotcha. Don't worry okay. about it. I don't think they were that memorable. So <laughs> you're not you're uh, you're not missing anything. All right. 
Okay, the other story, I, I'm a big Star Trek fan, and actually Star Trek has had a lot of comics throughout the years, and they announced a history-spanning crossover event that is coming also at the end of May, which actually sounds really interesting. It's called Star Trek Annual 2023. It's written by Colin Kelly and Jackson Lansing with art by Rachel Stott. Uh, it is a special issue of Kelly and Lansing's ongoing Star Trek series. And what, it, what it's going to show is uh, Captain Sisko and the crew of the Theseus interacting with Star Trek characters from various eras of the franchise via the holodeck. And, and there was a note in here that, that I ended up taking out. But Sisko is, has, ha, ha, has been in the holodeck going through... Uh, through previous eras of Star Trek before in the actual TV series, DS9. Uh, he, he actually went through the, the triple episode of the Star Trek original series, uh, which was, was actually a lot of fun. That episode was a lot of fun. But Interesting. Uh, if, if you're into Star Trek and you're interested in this uh, annual, it's supposed to go on sale on May 31st. Dan, do you, have you read any Star Trek comics? Oh, yeah. Back in the day, there were a lot of Star Trek comics uh, from various publishers. In fact, way back in the day, I've got some old gold key from like the 60s and early 70s Star Trek comics. So even way back, you know, right after the series got done, sort of they did. But then Marvel's had a license on them for a long time. They did a bunch of Star Trek stuff. And now some of the newer ones I haven't so much read. But I read a lot of the ones like in the 80s. And... Star Trek has always been a series that really seems to have lent itself well to being adapted to comics because yeah. they've been pretty entertaining stuff. I prefer the TV shows. I'm not going to say that the comic books are better, but they've they've held up really well. If you enjoy Star Trek and you happen to find one of the Star Trek comic books laying around, you'll probably enjoy that as well. Also, a lot of the novels, there are a lot of novelizations of Star Trek yeah, that I've read definitely. over the years that I thought were pretty good too. Definitely. I, I, I've always kind of thought about getting into Star Trek in the comic book form, but I, I, I've never actually, never actually done it yet. So maybe, maybe this might be an interesting time to, to look into some of that a little bit. Very cool. You have a recommendation for us for this week? Yeah. So I've just sort of been reading lately a book that's a history of American comics. It's actually called essentially, strangely enough, American Comics, A History. And it starts in the early years of comic strips and then moves through the introduction of comic books and then all of the different eras uh, since then. And it's really well written. It deals with characters. It deals with creators. It deals with the business side of things and the cultural side of things. So it is an actual history. But it's also, besides being informative, it's also really readable. So, written by a fellow named Jeremy Doiber, came out in uh, 2022, so it's new, it's basically right up to date, and if you're looking for something to kind of introduce you to comic studies and, and the history of comics, this is a great place to just go and get a sort of one-stop shop to get you started on uh, kind of more of the, the back-end history of it. If you want to learn more about comics as an art form, then probably it's something more like, you know, your your traditional understanding comics by Scott McCloud or something. 
But I really enjoyed this. Recommend you give it a read if you're interested. Right, sounds good. Thank you for the recommendation. And all right, we're going to switch and we're going to start talking about the brand new Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania movie. So this is your spoiler warning. This movie just came out several days ago. We're going to be talking about a lot of the characters, a lot of the plot points, all that sort of thing. So if you have not seen this movie and do not want any of this information spoiled, definitely stop the recording now. Watch the movie. Go to your theater, watch the movie, then come back and listen to us. If you've already seen it, strap in. We're going to talk all about it. And I I have a lot of questions, specifically about Kang, but we're going we're <laughs> we're going to talk a lot about oh, a lot man. of different characters. So uh, so there you go. All right, Dwayne. So, as you usually do, I suspect you have gathered for us a number of uh, film facts and, and information and the like to kind of get us started. What do you What do you have for us on Quantumania? All right. So, Ant Man and the Wasp: Quantumania has a tagline this February. Enter the quantum realm. This movie was released just days ago, February seventeenth, twenty twenty three. It has a runtime of one hundred and twenty five minutes. And so far in its first three days, I found information saying that domestically it has already grossed $104 million and $225 million worldwide. Could not find an actual budget number on the film, but the things I was did find say the likely budget was about $200 million. Currently on IMDb, this film has a rating of 6.6 out of 10. This movie stars Paul Rudd, Evangeline Lilly, Jonathan Majors, Catherine Newton, Michael Douglas, and Michelle Pfeiffer. It is directed by Peyton Reed, and screenplay credit go to Jeff Loveness and Jack Kirby. Those are your film facts for Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. So Kirby I'm looking at this recap. I am looking at this recap, Dan, and... Um, yeah, this looks longer than two minutes. It's almost, I'm going to stop halfway and we can visit for a little bit or we'll, we'll break it up. Let me, let okay. me go a couple paragraphs at a time here. So we're going to start out. You ready for the recap here, Dwayne? Yes, yes. Let's, all right. Uh, let's see, let's see how, how, uh, how this goes here because there is a all lot right. that happens in this film in two hours. So I'm not Maybe surprised this new. recap is long. All right. So to get us started, Movie actually begins, and we see that while trapped in the quantum realm, Janet Van Dyne actually encounters Kang as an exiled traveler who claims that they can both escape from the realm if she can help him rebuild his sort of power core to this spaceship unit that he's got a time traveling uh, ship. When they do repair it, Janet actually touches it and somehow sees this vision of Kang and who he really is and sees him destroying and conquering worlds doesn't want this to happen, so she actually turns on him, somehow enlarges the power core to where it basically becomes more like a massive structure and becomes unusable in the actual ship, and then in so doing strands both herself and him 
in that universe, meaning that he can't get out and conquer everybody, but she also can't get home. How'd that go for you? Did that a pretty decent start? We saw a little something different. Yeah, they, it was kind of like that open was this. And and initially I thought that it was it was Hank Pym coming in because we see a, a ship kind of crashing to the mm-hmm. ground. And I was thinking, oh, well, this is, you know, we're going back to the end of the second movie and seeing right before she gets picked up. And no, it ends up being Kang crashing after being exiled. Mm-hmm. And it was, yep. it, it, it was, I was like, oh, goodness, this is, so they've got history. And yep. nobody and so then really knows this there, right? Yeah. So we, yeah. we get that, and then they cut away to like Scott Lang whistling his way down the street going <laughs> to Baskin Robbins or something. And, right. and so all of that initial stuff is just kind of dropped for now. But we now know there's something that was going on in the quantum realm that we maybe didn't see in the previous movie. So Lang actually now, once we come back to the present day, he's writing books, he's dating Hope Van Dyne, he's occasionally having to bail his daughter Cassie out of jail. Cassie actually is now older. She's about 17, 18 years old. And she's now been working with Hank Pym sort of in secret on a device that can actually communicate back down to the the quantum realm, which they both think is this awesome idea. They go to show the family what they've done. Janet immediately starts to kind of freak out when she realizes what's going on. She warns them it's dangerous. And just as she says that, they turn it on and everybody is actually sucked out of the room they're in and down into the quantum realm where they get separated. They're actually also astonished to find that there's actually people and an entire civilization down in that realm. Scott and Cassie end up actually being found by a group of sort of rebels who are out in what would be sort of the forests or deserts of this world. And the rest of them, uh, essentially we've got uh, Hank, Janet, and Hope, all end up together sneaking their way into a city to try and make contact and explore a little bit more of what's going on there. So they split up our heroes into two parties. What do you think of what do you think of this? Like if you've played D before, you know never split the party because only yep. bad things can happen. And sure enough, you know yep. there, there's inklings of something terribly wrong down there while this is going on, because there's like ships that are going overhead that are looking for things and people and and like the the rebels that Scott and, and Cassie end up with, they're very untrusting. Um, yep. They don't, they. It's interesting. You they they're trying to talk to them and they can't understand them, so they have to drink this red goo, and then suddenly they can understand what the rebels are saying, which was kind of gross and funny at the same time. Yep. And they split them up almost in terms of its families, right? So it's the Langs. Right and the Pims on this quantum adventure, and they're separated. So you got Scott and his daughter, and you've got Hank and Janet and their daughter just kind of hanging around, having fun in the quantum realm. So, essentially, we've mostly spent time with Janet and what she's been up to, because she finds a former ally of hers who reveals things have changed a bit since she left, uh, and actually betrays her to Kang, who is now the ruler of this quantum realm. 
Uh, Kang's forces come in, they fight it out, they end up stealing a ship, actually her, her old friend's ship, and they head off with Janet knowing that what they've got to do is go and look for the power core. Because this is the thing Kang wants, it's the thing they have to somehow destroy or take care of or do something with. It is the MacGuffin yeah. of this particular film. Sure. Meanwhile, Scott and Cassie are actually in this sort of rebel encampment, which gets attacked by a bunch of Kang's forces, including a MODOK, which is this crazy-looking thing, right? It's basically a big <laughs> head, tiny little legs and arms, looks kind of like a television with an action figure sticking out of it. I don't really know how you would explain this thing. With, with, with lots of guns. It has lots and of guns, some like saw things. And the, nope. it's it, the, the acronym, it's an acronym. It is a uh, mechanical organism. Designed only for des- killing. Designed only for killing. That's what it was. So yes. yeah, this is, it, it's definitely built for killing. You can, you can see all the, all the bells and whistles for killing that it has. Yep. And interestingly, they move it back into the previous movies because it turns out it's Darren Cross, who is the guy who stole the yellow jacket armor in the first Ant-Man and actually got shrunk down to quantum size in the final scene by Scott yes. Lang. And he crashed yep. there, and then we'll find out what happens a little bit more later, but essentially he got turned into this MODOK by Kang. Yes. So, they get captured... They get brought back to Kang's Fortress. He threatens to kill Cassie unless Scott helps to get back that same power core that Janet and the team are looking for and is then taken to the sort of the center of that huge structure that Janet created, which is where the core is at. He needs to shrink down, so he does so. Once he's there, all sorts of weird probability things start happening, which means that every choice he could possibly make splits off a new Ant-Man, so there's suddenly thousands of them, and then there's thousands of Janets, and then they start trying to make a weird little ant pyramid like ants do by climbing up the other Scott Langs to get to where they need to. It's really weird. It's also actually it one of the coolest visuals, I think, in the entire movie. It's, it's pretty yeah. interesting stuff. Scott ends up almost being drowned in a sea of his own variants, but then Hope arrives. Uh, she, of course, can fly. She helps him to get out of that mess, acquire the power core. They come back to regular size. Kang turns out surprised as a villain, ends up betraying them, and after he attacks them and sort of leaves them sort of for dead and the like, he takes all the stuff and heads back and is going to continue with his nefarious plans. I love that one of the variants in there was the Baskin Robbins variant of Scott Lang. It made no sense that that one was no. there, but yet at the same time, it was it was fantastic that it was there. It was very humorous, and and the interesting thing is it you see how much of a driving force that Cassie is for Scott Lang because all. Oh, hell is basically breaking loose when all these variants start, you know, saying they're the prime Ant-Man and they're the ones that need to get the power core. But then it's like they all start working together to help Scott get the power core with the help of Hope when when yep. it basically is, it, you know, he's like, I need to do this because Cass- Cassie's going to die if I don't. And, and so that was... <laughs> Like you said, the v, the VFX in that in that part of the film was actually quite amazing to watch. 
Yep. And so we get through that. The dark tea time of the soul moment and the like. Everything's been taken down and they've been defeated. But even so, Hank Pym, we find out, actually is rescued by his ants. And not just any ants. These are the ants that fell through previously and have evidently spent millennia in the quantum realm, which functions in weird ways, creating their own hyper-intelligent ant society, and now come back, recognize their creator, and actually sort of come back and, and save the day by repairing him, repairing the ship, doing all sorts of other stuff. Hank then helps Scott and Hope as they make their way to Kang's fortress to save Cassie. And inside the fortress, Cassie has actually been able to uh, escape with the help of Jintora, one of the rebels. And they actually commence sort of this uprising against Kang from within, eventually even convincing Modok to, to sort of take on Kang as well and, and change his ways, which doesn't go particularly well for Modok. No. He ends up, well, mostly so completely dead at the hands of Kang. But, yeah, don't be a dick, Darren. Don't be a yes. dick. So that was, yep, that's the uh, the signature moment of the film, I suppose. Um, yes. What did, what did you think of all of this, then? At this point, we're I, pretty much just in fighting mode for quite a long time. Yeah, yeah, we're in the, the big third act, huge fight. You've mm-hmm. got the rebels that, are, that were captured, that have been freed, that are fighting. You have uh, Cassie has sent up they they commandeered Kang's like broadcast message to like the entire quantum realm, basically doing the victory lap that he's going to you know he's he's going yes. to win and he's going to leave. Uh, she hijacks it. They hijack it, and she basically says, you know, we're gonna fight. Now's the time. If you ever want to rise up and and take on Kang, now's the time. And so you have all these yes. all these rebels from the outside that are still free converging on the fortress people in the fortress it's 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 quite amazing and i think it was i liked the cassie character up until that point quite a bit but that just kind of put me over the edge is is she was that that whole thing where she's on the on the on the mic basically encouraging people to rise up was was quite quite amazing i really liked that part it was her Captain America from Civil War statement, or she exactly, said. exactly Cap did the same thing. So yep, 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 they do that. Janet's actually been fixing the power core, uh, kind of away from all of this, trying to figure out a way to get things ready. She gets it fixed. They get the family together. Everybody goes home except Scott, who doesn't get through in time. He then gets tackled by Kang, who attacks him, sort of beats him down. Hope pops back in. And Sheehan kind of takes the helps take out Kang, helps destroy the power core, and knock Kang into it, uh, which then causes him to be sort of immediately sucked into, I don't know, some even quantumer realm or something, <laughs> or he's just destroyed or whatever. Yeah. Cassie then actually reopens the portal one more time for mom and dad to come back through, and the movie proper ends with the quantum realm freed the family back at home and us just waiting for two credit scenes. So the first one, yes. we see a legion of variants of Kang planning sort of their multiversal uprising. And we also see Loki and agent Mobus uh, in the 1920s or so on earth, 
tracking a Kang variant named Victor Timely. There you go. Oh, that was that was actually quite a quite a good recap. There, as we said, there's a lot going on there. So that was yeah, probably about ten minutes or so. But we get some discussion in there throughout that. So yep, yep. Uh, I I I I mean, I think we have to start with Kang the Conqueror here. He is he is the focal point of this movie. I think not just because he's the villain for this movie. But I think, I I know I did not know much about Kang going into this film. And, you know, we had seen a version of potentially Kang at the end of the, uh, the Loki series last year. But this is not the same Kang, actually. This is a different, a different variant, a different person, kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, but that so there was a lot of like foundational work that I think had to be done here, and and I think I think they actually did a really good job. And and I will tell you, Jonathan Majors is absolutely fantastic in this film as Kang the Conqueror. He is he he is and and like I've talked about this before. The the guys that are calm all the time but you know they're like really smart and have a plan and have contingency plans to their plans are some of the most frightening people i think when it comes to villains and he definitely has that air about him uh in in this film specifically yep and kang when we're like you know we need to talk about kang he is such a difficult character to set up and get people to get their minds around. So they're right. going to have some work to do. This is a character too, though, who, even though he may seem complex, he may seem like somebody who maybe has been created more recently or whatever. This is actually an old school Marvel villain. He actually debuted all the way back in fantastic four, number 19. And he was first named as Kang in Avengers number eight. So at that point, you're talking some of the true classic books of the Marvel age, right? These are books from 1962, 1963. He's been around as long as, you know, not not far behind the Doctor Dooms and, and people like that. What's interesting about him is he is a time traveler, and essentially he's a character who He's from the future, and he uses time travel to go back in time and use future tech to then gain power and influence in previous eras, initially. Right. But then he also does sort of have all of these weird alter identities, and I think that's one of the reasons why he was probably attractive to them as a villain for things that involved variants and involved sort of this multiverse. Because just on a quick look, the, the aliases I have for Kang are Ramatut, Immortus, Scarlet Centurion, Prime Kang, Iron Lad, Victor Timely, Chrono Monitor number 616, and Mr. Griffin. And all of those are aliases or characters or sort of villains that he has 
embodied over the various years. And usually they're in different time periods and they have different things they're doing and everything. He's been involved with the Guardians and like, you know, has has messed around with all sorts of characters from different parts of the universe. So he really is a good character to bring into the MCU at this point. He's also super confusing because he's a time travel villain. Yeah. So. Oh yeah, definitely. And uh, so a couple things that that I found in in researching about this, uh, director Peyton Reed likened the character to Alexander the Great as a reference point for majors, who also found inspirations in Genghis Khan and Julius Caesar when kind of crafting how he was going to play this character. Major said that Kang would be the supervillain of supervillains and looked to contrast Tony Stark or Iron Man, who he called the superhero of superheroes, which I think is is really interesting. Um, you know, he talked nope. about having that this character Kang has lots of character and dimensions and the potential that presented it to him as an actor, noting that Kang would be a different type of villain to the MCU than Eric Killmonger or Thanos were, as well as the possibility of playing a complex villain about whom everyone has to be careful, akin to William Shakespeare's tragedy, uh, Lago in the William Shakespeare tragedy, Othello. Not real familiar you with going, what the going old school all the way back old, to Shakespeare even old, wow. old school. So that I mean, and a lot of times that's where they reach for some of the some of this stuff too. And and like it is comics are literature, people. Literature, I tell you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and to to your point, that mid credit scene, I actually I was like, I I, I am vaguely familiar with the council of kang and and we do see basically that's what that mid-credit scene is you have the council there and then you see this large sort of like almost like coliseum full of kangs that are just you know rowdy and getting ready to like take on all the timelines yes like the council of reeds and all the rest they they also call them sometimes, and I'm not kidding, the Cross Time Kang Corps. So just so you know, <laughs> okay, I, I I really doubt they'll be doing that in the uh, in the movie. But that's my favorite term for them is Cross Time Kang Corps. It's all of those crazy Kangs coming at you. Everything with Kang gets really confusing. It even goes back to his very name, because. He is actually from the 30th century or something like that. And his name is Nathaniel Richards. He is a descendant of, evidently, both Reed Richards and Dr. Doom. So at some point, the screams crossed. And he is, so he's very much, I mean, he, you know, debuted in Fantastic Four. He is a descendant of the Fantastic Four. This is a guy who's 100% in that legacy. And... That's one of the reasons also why, you know, they've had the Council of Reeds. The fact that centuries later, another one of his sort of line is causing trouble in the Marvel Universe this way. Uh, The Richards are brilliant, and they're extremely dangerous. They don't always mean to be, though. Initially, 
Nathaniel Richards wasn't really thinking he was going to be a villain. He kind of ended up that way. And so you even look at the fact that later, when Cassie first meets Kang in the Young Avengers, he's actually in Iron Man armor, and he calls himself, uh, and that, well, actually, that's one of the, the ones there. He calls himself Iron, Iron Lad. Lad. Yeah. And Iron Lad looks like Iron Man, but he's actually a young version of Kang from ahead in the future before he goes bad, who's now at some point read in the history books that he goes bad and has decided that he's going to go back in time before then and stop himself from becoming a supervillain. Oh gosh. Yeah. So you've actually got Kang's fighting Kang's. Uh-huh. Yeah. It, to, to, to your point, even in this film, he talks about the fact that basically he's not the villain here. He just yep. is trying to get out of the quantum realm that something really big and bad is coming. But he also admits that it's him that's coming. Other versions of him are coming and it's going to be bad when they do. And he needed to get out of here. And, and you know, I don't think you kind of see that at the end of the film. Scott's like starting to put some of these lines together and he's like, uh Oh, did I just like completely doom us as a civilization because I beat up this, this one version of gang because there's other versions of gang that are coming. And, and that is one of the readings that's possible is that Janet made a big mistake in that when she, when she saw the vision, she saw, the face of Jonathan Majors doing all these horrible things. The guy who she was working with may have been the one who was keeping all the other ones back. Because if you saw at the end, they're like, hey, that guy's gone. We should get the army together now. Right. Yeah. And so it is possible that in actual fact, while trying to save the multiverse, she may have put in put into motion the, the problem by taking out the one guy who could have maybe kept everything in check. Or at least was was trying to, which maybe maybe yep. why he, he got exiled. And, yep. you know, yeah. So there's going to be a lot more discussion about Kang, but we're going to, let's move on. And I want to talk about the other kind of really big kind of villainy sort of thing here. And it is the MODOK because I, this month actually in Marvel Snap, the, we got Modoc as a as a card. I had not seen or knew of Modoc before before this month, and oh my goodness, I was not ex necessarily expecting to see a Modoc in this film. Obviously, there was, and I will say this: I actually that could have looked horrible from a VFX standpoint because obviously. There's a lot of VFX going into this Modoc actually being on yes. the screen, but it didn't look that bad. Like, I mean, it looks hideous. It looks weird. It looks disgusting. It looks terrifying from the standpoint of all the weapons and things that it has access nope. to. But at the same time, I, I thought it looked cool. I thought it made sense. The callback to it being Darren Cross from the first film Yep. was was chef's kiss fantastic I, it was like there's a loose end that that isn't a loose end anymore what did you think of modok yep. 
I at first had no idea what to think. That that really was weird, right? Yes. He is, yes. It is a hideous character, and I think that even if the VFX are good, just how inhuman that is with that massive, like stretched out face, and then the tiny uh-huh. little legs, and the fact that they had him play it as such a sort of weird, frenetic character. You've got in the notes here something about they played it as Otto from A Fish Called Wanda. And as soon yes. as I read that, I'm like, oh my God, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. That sort of just manic violence and sort of insanity. Like it it seems like going through and being turned into a Modoc messed with his psyche, with his his, you know, ability to, to maintain sane. But I liked it more than I thought I would. I think I still could have done without a Modoc in this film. But sure. I liked it more than I thought I would. Yeah. Uh, you've got You've got a question of, is this the way it is in the comics with Darren Cross as well? Not even remotely. Uh, <laughs> okay, I was so, wondering. <laughs> again, MODOK's an old character, not as not as old as Kang. He came out first in 1967 in Tales of Suspense number 93. He's actually an AIM engineer, like one of those guys in the yellow sort of radiation-looking suits. Sure. He actually ended up sort of offering himself up to be genetically experimented on by the organization. Became hideously deformed, gained super intelligence, and then essentially murdered everybody else and took over the organization. So a, a warning about AI in our modern yeah. day. But yeah. so he was not anything to do with Ant Man. He actually was a Captain America villain for the most part, because AIM was mostly a Captain America uh, organization that he fought. Sure. He did occasionally fight others. Ended up dying in 1986 in the comics, and then was resurrected here and there as needed through various comic mechanisms. So you'd yeah. see him once in a while. Eventually, there now is a new one called Modok Superior, who appeared in the Gwenpool comics and has become sort of her, uh, I guess, arch enemy in some ways. And that's actually pretty entertaining. Gwenpool is sort of a, a Deadpool takeoff. It's kind of got more of a comic-y kind of feel to it. And I think that MODOK has been a really good... I, I like the Gwenpools with MODOK a lot. Those were pretty cool. In essence, though, yeah, I, I think that as being just this crazy killing machine that's also smart, but completely off the wall, Yeah, they captured the essence of MODOK pretty well. But it's a very yeah. different one. And as oh. a note, if you saw his, uh, his like, blasts, in the in the comics, that's actually that his brain is so overcharged, he's got a headband where he can channel mental energy into these crazy like laser beams. Oh, and so that's that's kind of uh, a little bit different. All so. right, yeah. So yeah, you mentioned you mentioned this the the Jeff Lovelace, one of the screenwriters, said that the influence for Modok was. Otto from A Fish Called Wanda, and Frank Grimes, the character from the Simpsons episode Homer's Enemy. And that's a great character if you've ever seen that episode of The Simpsons. It is actually fantastic. Easily, like, very smart, but easily loses his cool, a a real loose cannon. And and the other interesting tidbit I found on talking about MODOK was they've, there's been actually several attempts to get 
a Modoc into a live action film or TV series before this one. Apparently, uh, in 1997, there was a script for an Iron Man film with 20th Century Fox that would have actually featured a Modoc as a main villain, but the screen, uh, the script was reworked by other writers. Uh, Christopher Marcus wanted the Modoc to appear in Captain America the Winter Soldier, with Peter Dinklage potentially eyeing playing the character. Uh, Marvel rejected that idea, instead went with the Alexander Pierce character that Robert Redford ended up playing. There was later rumors that Peter Dinklage might end up being a Modoc during Avengers Infinity War, but that didn't end up happening either. There was apparently some plans that during the fifth season of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. there could have been a MODOK with Keith David potentially playing the character, uh, but that didn't come to fruition either. So this is a character that they've been trying to figure out a way to get into a film or a TV show for quite some time, actually. And I, I could see why they had... Uh, I I could see why they had difficulty getting it into a movie or TV show, but I I think it actually worked pretty well here. I mean, just with the the technical challenges of it, and how Modok is not like a an A list villain, that there no. were that many desperate attempts to try and shoehorn him into various things, kind of amazes me. So, um, in this one, I think. He had an interesting arc as well, because obviously he was the bad guy in Ant-Man 1. He's the bad guy here until the end. And then evidently Cassie somehow convinces him that it's never too late to stop being a dick or whatever. Which is (laughs) essentially a quote from the movie. Uh, Right. And he turns into a good guy before he dies. So, there you go. Yeah. This is also right. a thing that happens a lot, it seems, in Marvel movies with the secondary characters. Um, like Thor, we had that happen to a couple of characters, and they, uh, they come to their senses before they die. Anyways. Right. So so one other character I really do want to talk about is Cassie Lang, who I think sure. was played fantastically by Catherine Newton. This is, this is a character that we have not seen that much of with regards to, like... Cassie's been in the first two films and was actually a different actress played played the character during during the uh during Endgame. But like throughout these movies, Cassie has always been a a a very big motivator for Scott. He has definitely been she has been a very important part of his life and, and a real motivator to to actually get uh to progress through the films and that sort of thing and i really liked the fact that they actually created a a fully fleshed out character in this film you you really found out what kind of person cassie lang is she's very strong-willed she wants to help people even potentially at the detriment of herself and and like she's smart, she obviously understands science and, and and physics and all this. Working with Hank on on this this sonar equipment thing, mapping mm-hmm. software thing that ends up getting them pulled into the quantum realm. 
and and she even has a suit like we like uh had was kind of spoiled in some of the the Volkswagen trailers before the movie came out she actually has mm-hmm. her own suit and is trying to learn how to be you know kind of like uh you know Ant-Man and Wasp Scott and and Hope and and is still learning it but i i mean i think it was i think it was really great i think the character could have been very one dimensional and and stayed that way but i think it really it really added a dimension to this this movie that that when when they made her such an interesting character and can be something going forward i really hope that this is the first of several appearances for 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 Cassie Cassie Lang going forward. Well, and the the hope is that they're building out the Young Avengers slowly but surely. You know that you're going to get Hawkeye, and you're going to get Stature, and you're going to get a number of these others, and they could even they could even bring it in with Phase Five a little bit because you know to go back to talking about uh, how she got her powers in the first place. Cassie actually got her powers when or in in avengers like young avengers number six and then joined the group and kang as iron land founded that group so iron land is actually a core part of the origin story of cassie's character so and then so are the young avengers very much linked to kang so maybe we'll get them soon that would be cool she's had an interesting history in the comics too because kind of like we talked about last week she actually was killed by dr doom and also then was resurrected by him in a moment of sort of feeling bad about having killed her. Uh, she lost her powers when her heart was stolen by Darren Cross, the guy who got turned into a MODOK here, right? And then she actually got her powers back thanks to the Power Brokers app and used that to take down Darren Cross. And she's been both Stature, which is kind of growing powers, and then Stinger, where she's got the wings in the comics. So... She's had a pretty decent last decade as a comic character, and I think there's a good there's a good chance they're building these younger Avengers out so that they can sort of take over in the next decade here. Yeah, that that makes sense. They very early on when she gets bailed out of out of jail by by Scott and Hope, they're like questioning her where the where. Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? She pulls up this shrink, shrunken cop car at the meeting. Absolutely fantastic. I, I, I really liked that. Yeah, that is. So she's she's had access to PIM particles and is doing bad things or at least interesting things with them for a while. But then we or, learn that she's also got some science ideas. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, or, or at least she's got those, like, the, the little, like, shrinking or or enlarging disc things like nope. like scott and, and and hope have had and used nope. uh throughout the first two films and, and even in this one as well nope absolutely so yeah i think i think they did a nice job with that it's a cool character it's also interesting that you have five characters in this movie who are all heroes who all basically have the exact same powers so if, so they've essentially geeked in, taken the powers really away from Janet and Hank, and they're just doing sort of other stuff now. And you've got Scott and Hope as the main Atman and the Wasp, and then you've got the next generation ready to come in as well. But they're all kind of the same. So being yeah. able to make that so it differentiates 
and and they all kind of did their own interesting thing was something that was important and i think they did a decent job of so what did you think of uh kind of this backstory or or like the the reveal about what uh janet van dyne had been doing in the quantum realm that she wasn't talking to anybody about until they got back into the I think actually that, for me, Janet and Hank's stories were the most interesting ones in the film. I know you like Cassie obviously a lot. Yeah. For me, it was yeah. the, it was these two that I really kind of enjoyed. It was very awkward at times because yes. it was obvious that Hope was learning things about her mom and Hank was learning things about his wife that were uncomfortable, and they didn't really have time to process them because they're in the middle of trying to stop a, you know, dictator from destroying the the universe or whatever. But she had a very active life in the quantum realm. She started wars. She fought in wars. She had her own new group of friends. She evidently had needs at times. Um, It was a very odd movie for me because the two older characters, these parents, actually stole the show. The kids were there, but it was obvious at certain times that still the really sort of badass true heroes, if you needed heroes, it's going to be that OG Ant-Man and the Wasp, right? Hank and so? Janet. Hank and Janet will mess people up if you if you if put give them, them an to, opportunity. To their backs to the wall, right? Yeah. Um, and I like the fact that, you know, Janet was able to sort of have all these things that she was doing, and we get that backstory. I love the fact that Hank's aunts actually in many ways are like the saviors of the third ant or of the third act. You know, it's an Ant-Man right. movie and it's a bunch of armored, hyper-intelligent ants that just sort of storm the battlefield and, and take over. You know, that, that he somehow... Go ahead. No, I was going to say with, with Hank just basically standing there with his hands on his, <laughs> on his hips being like, yep, yep. I did this. <laughs> he just sort of walks with in. Me. You know? And, and this really is... There is nothing more Hank Pym than just sort of accidentally creating this, you know, millennia-old civilization of super-intelligent ants that have now sort of like, I think they revere him as some sort of god, and they, you know, they still communicated with him when he's down there. They're like, it's the creator. Let us go and serve him. And the the only thing that has to happen now is two years from now they will all go bad, turn into some sort of Ultron-level threat and, you know, threaten the the multiverse, and then it'll be a perfect Hank Pym story. So, yeah. (laughs) Exactly. I I really enjoyed Hank and Janet's stories. There was one part of it, though. Lord Krylar. Do you remember Lord Krylar? I mean, how could you forget the... uh... When, when Bill Murray comes on the on your on your on your uh, film screen, you are going to you're you're going yeah. to it's going to be memorable in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. So he plays her ex, sort of like rebel companion slash lover from when she's in the the quantum realm. He basically just plays Bill Murray, and mm-hmm. it was. I love Bill Murray. Like, I absolutely, my daughter and I watch Wes Anderson movies, and he's great in them. I I watch Groundhog Day basically every year, just went to it at the Fargo Theater with my wife 
a couple weeks ago. This was weird. He is not. It was weird. Awkward. Very awkward. I do not know he belongs in the Marvel universe, and he's not the first one. It sometimes it works, but also like Jeff Goldblum was over the top in the Thor movie, right? Benicio del Toro is the collector back in the day. They sometimes get these actors who are a little bit kind of, you know, unusual anyways. And they seem to just amp their personality up to 11 and let them go. 11? Maybe like 15 or 20. Maybe. <laughs> so, yeah. So that that was, let us speak no more of Lord Krylar and just call it good. Or except to say, except to say that maybe he's not going. We're, we will never see Lord Kylar again because uh, the the drink with the weird kind of slug creature yes. in it. One of the other <laughs> slug creatures got made huge as a way for them uh, for Hope, Hank, and Janet to escape. It basically, looks like grabs and potentially eats. Lord Krylar, just like he had done minutes prior uh, to his the smaller version that was in his drink. Yes, uh, we can only absolutely. hope. Probably <laughs> it was. It was that is that is the one good thing is that yeah, hopefully it was a one time cameo and uh, and we're yes. safe now. But it's it's never terrible to see Bill Murray, but I don't know that he fit. Let's put it that way. No, no, no. So what do you got for um, me? I, I, I wanted to ask you about what did you think overall about the, the visual effects in this film? Because I, I definitely, I think we've had a real critical eye over the last few films about some of the, the VFX shots not really being up to snuff, at least, as it pertains to maybe previous films uh, or, or other films that aren't Marvel films. And I think what caught my eye or what what i noticed was a fact that nothing really jumped out to me of being too bad or out of place in this film and it, and it wasn't that there wasn't vfx shots because that entire quantum realm the modok that that ant-man wasp splitting scenario thing that we talked about with the power cord there were a lot of vfx shots in here and they all looked really good to me. I, I didn't see any that really jumped out to me as being terrible. And the other thing was, like, we've talked about the fact that sometimes they try and hide some of the VFX shots in that the lighting is really dark, like in Thor Love and Thunder and Wakanda Forever. I didn't really feel like, like, it was dark, but it wasn't, like, dark, dark, like like we were seeing in some of those other films. So it didn't feel like they were trying to hide any of the VFX shots either. I would agree. I think it still was really saturated, which is kind of a thing that Marvel movies just do. And there's obviously not a lot of daylight in the quantum realm, which, you know, it would be, it'd be a depressing place to live. Let's put it that way. Even, even without gang around, but I, I think I'd agree. And in fact, I would say that, Considering they had to make a MODOK, and I didn't immediately want to come and just make fun of it on the podcast, I think uh-huh. they must have done a pretty decent job. Yeah. And I really enjoyed 
the tons of ant men trying to climb on each other and get up to the thing scene. It was yep. goofy. It was 100% yeah. comic book, but it was fun. I think overall, though, what I would say about the VFX, kind of what you said, where there was nothing about it that really bothered me, nothing about it that maybe really excited me, is one of the things that just in general about this movie, I don't know that I came out of it going, man, I've got to see this movie again because of X scene. Sure. I I didn't come out of it going, I never, well, I kind of did come out of it going, I never want to see that Bill Murray scene again. But outside of that, there was nothing about it that bothered me. But I don't think there was any really spectacular moment, like a, you know, Captain America catching Thor's hammer and and throwing it type of thing, or, or any of these things where there's kind of signature moments. Whether it's in the effects or just in the script, I didn't really see anything signature. And part of it also is all of the heroes had shrinking and growing powers, and they put them in a universe where you don't get to see a giant Thomas the Tank Engine. And I think that was one of the things that was coolest about Ant-Man sometimes, is you get to see our world at different scales. And because the quantum realm is just sort of at this weird sort of alternate scale, a lot of the visual, the impressive visuals you'd be able to get from shrinking and growing really don't exist. Because even when Ant-Man becomes super big at the end, it's not like he's striding through San Francisco. He's striding through a bunch of generically sized quantum buildings that may or may not really be huge, you know? And so... I, I do think that's something that worked against it, is the VFX maybe didn't have as much of a chance to shine just because of the setting they put it in. But but for what it was, I liked the weird little goopy guy that they had to drink to be able to I have do holes. things. Yeah, yes. I have holes. There, <laughs> a lot of the, the things where they had to do complex effects, like for characters and stuff, I think they really nailed them. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, no, very I, competent, very competent. We we talk about like you, Dan, and I are both big baseball fans, and I think one of the things that that I think about when I think about this is I, I think of via special effects a lot of times the way I look at umpires in baseball. If I'm not commenting specifically about them, then they're just kind of in the background. Then they've done their job. It, mm-hmm. It's a in, in a lot of cases, um, yes, you know, it it feels like that's been something we've had to that that we've talked had to talk specifically about because there's been glaring things about them in the last few movies. So, for using baseball analogies, I have another for you. I think okay. if this movie was like a baseball player, it would be somebody who is like a slap hitting leadoff hitter whose job is not to hit a home run or win the game, but just to sort of get on base and wait for the team to come and do something to, to knock them in. Yeah. You know, I could, that's I, could see, I could see that. I could see that. It's a, it's a very sort of straightforward movie. It tells a story, but nothing really it's, too it's aggressive. It's foundational to me. 
It's foundational. It, it is setting the stage for the larger story that is being going to play out through the entire phase, I think. And that is something that it's interesting because even with even with TV shows now, I am finding myself sometimes getting tired by the TV shows where you've got an entire season of 10 or more episodes where it's one story and you're just waiting to get through that story. And I kind of like now finding some of the more episodic ones where it's like, hey, I'll watch an hour of TV and I know who the murderer was. Or I watch an hour of TV and somebody's had an adventure and did what they wanted to do. The fact that the Marvel Universe is still operating at movie scale, which means we're waiting three months between episodes, but they're getting this episode, they're, they're getting this continued, you know, that I don't know if really there was enough story told in this one for what I would really like. I enjoyed the movie. Sure. I have nothing against it. But I do wonder if, you know, because partly because it's the start of Phase 5, if maybe they could have told a bit more, told a story that made more difference. Because really the main thing that happened here is Kang didn't escape. Somebody who already was stuck in the quantum realm now is still not out of the quantum realm. Like nothing actually changed. Yeah. 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 So anyway. So you I have normally... a few quick oh. I have a few quick uh tidbits and references from the comics before before we wrap up this discussion, we do our face off. The first is and and we talk about these a lot with the movies, kind of the working title uh for this. The principal photography for this movie started actually July twenty sixth to six, twenty twenty one under the working title Dust Bunny. So if you're familiar, if you're interested in what the working title of this or code name for this film was, that's what it was. Uh, Peyton Reed, the director of the film, actually early in his uh, career, directing career, actually directed some behind the scenes materials for the Back to the Future franchise. And he kind of paid tribute to that during the some of the open during one of the opening scenes in this film, you see the, the family kind of gathering around for pizza and they bring out this like really small pizza and then they like put a drop or two of something on it and it suddenly becomes like this extra large or at least a large size pizza. That That's, that's like directly out of uh, Back to the Future 2. There was a small pizza that you put in the oven and it comes out as a full-sized uh, pizza, which I thought was actually quite, quite, quite fun, and um, one one other just note about uh, the dynamic between fathers and daughters that uh, Jeff Loveness used uh, for Cassie and Scott's um, relationship. There were he said that they kind of took some some inspiration and references from the film's Father of the Bride from 1991, as well as the movie hook which i actually really like father of the bride it, it is one of my favorites is a steve martin film yep. that absolutely is, is quite fun so i thought that was That's interesting yeah so um the last a uh, couple references to the comics scott's ant-man suit has been altered to include the classic chest pattern from the comics yep. king's 
facial scars resemble markings on his mask from the comics, and his face shield also makes his face appear blue, which is how he looks in the, in the comics. And uh, there was a, a rather cheeky little reference uh, to comic book issues in here as well. Uh, towards the end of the film, they need to unlock the drawbridge that, that uh, has been kind of retracted. And they're trying to figure out what the passcode is for it. 18147. That, that sequence actually is rather, rather important because Avengers 181 was Scott Lang's first appearance, while Marvel Premiere 47 is the first appearance of Ant-Man. So, wow. Yeah. Did you just know that when you were in the movie? You're just I did not I know. know that from the movie. I that that was somebody much smarter than me noticed and 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 pulled that together. But we've seen that before, right? We we All see numbers yep. and and things like that that have the there's nothing that's just random. There's always little things like this that yep. that even the most mundane number usually has some special meaning to it in some way, yep. shape, or form. And the bus numbers and on Moon Knight and stuff like that, and a lot of the other things, apartment numbers, they they do it on all yep. sorts of things. So, yep. righty, sir. So, talked about things a little bit. Now we come to that point. We've read a bunch of Ant Man comics, including the Astonishing Ant Man number one through thirteen from back in twenty fifteen, and we've also watched Ant Man and the Wasp: Quantumania. Which of these do you think told the better Ant-Man story? Oh, wow. Uh, I, I probably should have had a better answer for this set up and ready to go. Um, I'm actually going to lean toward the comic here. And, and it's interesting because like, I, I think that the, the movie has some interesting things going for it. There was definitely, it was a, a well-crafted story, I think. But it was just, I don't know, it, it, all, it, it didn't feel like the first two Ant-Man films. I did end up seeing both the first two Ant-Man films before getting to see Ant-Man and Wasp Quantumania. And it, it didn't quite feel like that same sort of thing. I really missed... Uh, Michael Pena, who is in the first two films, is fantastic in the first two films. Yes. He's not in this film at all. Um, I, 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 I don't know. It's, it's weird. I, I'm leaning towards the comic, though. I, you know, I hadn't even thought of this. But yeah, that's like making a, a Doctor Strange movie without Wong at this point. Why, why would anyone go to a Doctor Strange movie that doesn't have Benedict Wong in it? Because he's so spectacular as a supporting character. And and the same thing. Michael Pena was, like, one of the best parts of those movies. So the fact that they essentially took him out completely. He didn't even appear in, like, some scenes at the beginning just as a setup or whatever. Uh, just not at all. Yeah, that's... That's absolutely unfair. Uh, that's, a, that's an I want my money back moment. When you realize that... <laughs> <laughs> one of your favorite characters isn't in the prequel but anyway i i agree i think that i liked the story we read last week was a complete story it was something that 
kind of had a very Ant-Man feel. It had it had the feel of kind of the early Ant-Man movies and the She-Hulk TV show and a lot of these that are taking kind of a cheekier look at some of the lesser characters of the Marvel Universe. And I like the way that they dealt with Cassie in that one. Um, there's a lot of elements from those comics that come into this because like that's the origin of stinger and the like so yeah i i think if i had to especially for someone who'd watched ant-man one and two i think if they're like which one would i enjoy more as an ant-man one and two fan i think you'd probably enjoy the comics more than the third ant-man movie and there was nothing against it entirely yeah there there was no there was something really interesting about halfway through the film and I'm watching it and I'm thinking this feels a little more like a star Wars film than it does a Marvel movie. And, and like, I, I, I was specifically thinking of like the cantina and stuff from like the original trilogy and that, yep. and, and seeing when they first go into, into that town and they're seeing, you know, the broccoli headed guy and, and all these other, other different things. I'm thinking, wow, this has, just sort of feels Star Wars, which is interesting because Peyton Reed actually directed some episodes of The Mandalorian, which uh, I did not realize until doing doing some uh, doing some research on 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 Peyton Reed. But it, again, it's a solid movie. It was it was fun. I I enjoyed it. I sat there. I had popcorn and and I got to see some some characters that were that were interesting and fun. Uh, I'm really excited to see what they do with, with with Cassie Lang. I think that character has a lot of potential, and you know, there's apparently talks about possibly doing a fourth installment of Ant Man, which you know, I yep. obviously it depends on how the box office goes for this overall, but I I I definitely could see that happening. Yeah, and I I also enjoyed it. I just think that it was enough of a departure and it was a movie that obviously was being used to set up other things that the word potential probably is, is both the good and the bad part of this, that you see the potential of Cassie to be used as a main part of the MCU moving forward. You see the potential of Kang as this villain, who's going to be somebody who's really going to be interesting. And you're looking forward to seeing in the future movies and the like. So yeah, I think it was it was a good time. I'm not going to give it a give it a, you know, I wish I hadn't gone, but I also think that it's not something that I'm going to watch repeatedly. You know, if I had right. if I had a choice to sit down and watch an Ant-Man movie, I would choose one or two rather than this one probably. Sure. I I would definitely concur with that opinion. All right, so where where are we headed to next, Dan? Well, so all right, so here's the thing. We finished up Age of Ultron, and then we hopped in to do Ant Man and the Wasp: Quantumania, because we wanted to make sure that we got that taken care of and that we we're able to get this one out in time. The movie that's actually the next one we're going to look at, sort of a little bit oddly, is actually Ant-Man. So we're going from Ant-Man 3 this week back to Ant-Man number 1 next week. So 
we're going to read some more Ant-Man comics. We're going to get ready for that. We're going to see what's going on. Because of the fact that we've already read a lot of the stuff that would be the Ant-Mans that are essentially the, the Scott Lang ones, we're actually going to drop you in with a history of Hank Pym himself by reading Tales to Astonish, uh, 27, 35, and 44, which are the three first appearances of Hank Pym and Janet uh, Van Dyne. Essentially, you start to see the, the beginnings of, the, of Ant-Man and the Wasp. And then we're also going to look at a series of comics from the 80s that collectively are called The Trial of Hank Pym. And it kind of goes back through his career and also is a look at sort of how that character ended up sort of falling in the Marvel Universe in the 80s. It's Avengers 212 to 214, 217, 222, 224, 227, and 230. And this happened a lot in Marvel back in the day. They had a, a storyline that was running through, but then because it was the Avengers, Ant-Man didn't have his own book, so they wanted to, or Yellow Jacket, so they didn't want to put it in right there. But they still didn't just want to ignore all the other characters while they were doing it. So you'd have some issues that would focus on other Avengers, and then they'd come back. So you can read 212 to 230 if you really want to, but you don't need to. It's just the ones that are listed that we'll put into the, uh, we'll put into the notes for the show. Sure. I also wanted to just mention a heads up that we're planning to start expanding outside the MCU from time to time, which is something we had talked about previously. And to that end, we are planning on covering the new Shazam movie that's coming out next month. That's going to be kind of our first uh, look outside the MCU. So if you're interested in Shazam, we're, we're going to have a, uh, a two week look at Shazam both in the comics and then the, the new movie which which I know Dan really likes liked the first film I did not like it as much but we are going to I, I'm going to give Shazam another chance by going and seeing the second film and then we're going to talk Wayne in fact podcast. is is being gentle he he actually actively seems to have disliked the first Shazam movie and he's, he's nodding his head here while I really liked it so we have generally, I think, mostly agreed on most of the Marvel stuff in terms of, of you know, how we felt about it. This one, the first one, we had a serious diversion. We'll see how it goes on, on this return. I also attempted to move him even farther away than Shazam, and I recommended <laughs> we review the new Cocaine Bear move coming out. But that no, was just... No, that was a bridge was, too far, Dan. That was, that was a, bridge a bridge too, too far. far. I, I proposed it as a movie that should have been a comic and that we could review it that way. But no, Dwayne says no. So if you really yes. wanted a cocaine beer review, you should send us a note or you should, you know, oh God. post on Twitter and please, try and guilt him please, into it. But, please, please do not do that. Please do not do that. <laughs> anyway, Ant-Man. Ant-Man, yes. the movie, we start next week. All right, that's going to wrap it up for us for this week. We'd like to thank you all for joining us. If you're new to the podcast, please consider subscribing on your podcast player of choice. That way you'll get each new episode as soon as it's released. 
you have some thoughts on Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantum Mania or anything else comic book related, we'd love to hear hear from you. You can interact with us on social media via via Twitter. We are at Comics Over Time there. We could also be reached via email. That address is comments at comicsovertime.com. Dan, Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantum Mania was fun and a very interesting setup for the rest of Phase 5 in the MCU. I, I I'm very curious where this is going to go, but we we have to kind of take a break from that for a little while, and so we're going to head back to to phases three and four until until then. So, yep, more stuff is coming, but it's going to take a little while. So, looking forward to this. I really enjoyed. Spoiler alert! I really enjoyed the first Ant Man movie, so I'm looking forward to rereading these comics that. Uh, these ones from the 80s were actually ones I read when I was a kid and then taking a look at that movie. So I think we've got some good stuff coming up the next couple weeks. Sounds good. Until next time, take care, everybody. All right. See you later, folks. <laughs>